Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica. He traveled there, planted this church, and was only there, we know, for three Sabbaths. So that could have been two weeks or depending how the days fell out, maybe four weeks before he was driven out because of persecution. So he was not with this group of people very long. Uh, and he was concerned about them. He's writing this letter. There's a number of things happening there at the church that were concerning to him. One was they were facing real persecution and affliction and suffering. And he was <clears throat> very concerned about <clears throat> excuse me, how well that church was doing under the suffering, so much so they sent Timothy to get there before he could because he wanted to make sure their faith was standing under those circumstances. Secondly, there was some confusion as to the Lord's coming, but they were very much expectant for the Lord's return, so much so that there were some people in the church totally quitting their jobs and just waiting for the Lord to return. So we have here in this church, uh, and there were some other things, but these two major kind of forces that I think are very much like the day and age that you and I live in. And we are facing more and more persecution to Christianity and to anyone who wants to hold to the truth of the Word of God in our days. And we are also, I think, feeling the nearness of the Lord's return, uh, that He's coming. And in the middle of that, you can kind of think, okay, what do we do then? How, how should I live my life? What, I'm feeling these two things. How am I supposed to honor the Lord in the middle of that? And what I want to look at is some direct commands that Paul gives to a church living in the middle of this scenario. Some exhortations as to here's how to live in the middle of these things. So if you would, let's begin in verse 9. Paul says this. But concerning brotherly love, and the word for brotherly love there is Philadelphia, which I have to mention because we're in Philadelphia. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So the first thing he says to this church is, in the middle of these circumstances, is look, here's what, one thing you know you need to focus on. Love one another. And not only that, he says, you'll notice there in the beginning, you yourselves are taught of God. He basically says, I, I shouldn't really even need to say this because you are taught of God. The Greek word there is the only time it's used in the New Testament or in the Bible. Uh, if you are a language person, you want to look at some close uh, comparisons. You can look at John 6, 45 and 1 Corinthians 2, 13. And the word directly means God taught. Like in contrast to any other teacher, God Almighty supernaturally teaches believers that they need to do these things in a way that really I shouldn't even have to tell you this as an apostle. This is one of, again, the, the major things that you and I are called to do, not only by the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but by both the commandments and the life of Jesus Christ. We, we know John 3.16, but we can forget it was God who told us about John 3.16. It's Jesus Christ who would tell us that God so loved the world. 
that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Only God could reveal what was in his heart in that moment. And Jesus' life was a total example of these things. He entered into our pain to love us. He loved the mother and a father. He loved siblings who didn't get along with him. He loved friends. He loved strangers. He loved people that he would heal and would walk away and never follow him again. He loved them. He loved high in society, people like the Pharisees. Uh, I'm always shocked by his love for the Pharisees, that he would enter into a Pharisee's house knowing they would be trying to trick him, knowing that they would treat him wrongly, that they would be impolite in their interactions with him, and he would endure all of that just to love them and point them to the truth. He loved publicans, sinners, tax collectors, people that the high in society would look at and they would say, you are literally a traitor to our society for the things that you believe. He loved those people. He loved people that were his enemies so that when he was being nailed to the cross, he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved people that were racially looked down on, like the Samaritans. James and John, we know, wanted to call down fire and burn up a city of Samaritans. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. The people who came to arrest him have their ear chopped off, and he would put the ear back on. He would heal. He was the Lamb of God, picture of a helpless lamb. When his ministry began, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit came down on him in the form of a gentle dove. And he would say, I'm not here to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. This is the person that you and I are following. This is the person whose spirit is put into our lives. This is the dominant characteristic of his life. And there are plenty of causes and things that we can be involved in as Christians, but there is no cause as high as being a reflection of the God that we serve and a witness of his love and reality. You can fight for abortion, and that's wonderful, but there's people who will murder uh, an abortion doctor because they feel like the end justifies the means. That person is right to be called into question as to their following Christ. Because the ends didn't justify the means for him. If that were true, then Jesus could have sinned more than anybody else because he was doing the most important thing that ever happened on the face of the earth. That was not his character. And what Paul is saying here is, in the middle of this craziness, if you're trying to figure out how to live in this persecution with the coming of the Lord, with the things that you're facing, you are called to love one another. I don't even need to teach you this because he has taught it to you. You should know it in your own heart. Jesus, again, we know these verses would say to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you. It wasn't new that they were supposed to love one another. It was new that they were supposed to love one another the way he loved them. That you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus gives the world, the unsaved world, the right to judge our Christian profession 
based on the love we express toward one another. The unsaved world doesn't judge our doctrine. We should have right doctrine, and that's important. But the unsaved person on the street isn't saying, let me look up your Christian doctrine and see if you're orthodox. This is out of line with the church fathers. The unsaved person's not doing that. He says, they should look at the love you have for one another and know that you're my disciples because you love like me. And if you don't, they have the right to question whether your profession is legitimate. Now, it doesn't mean Christ is illegitimate because we're imperfect and people will reject uh, a caricature of Christ's love without rejecting Christ himself. But as Christians, that needs to be expressed. In this church, there, there had to be problems. We can sometimes think of this church as if they were perfect, but there is no doubt disagreements in this church. You can imagine, again, if our church was under the type of persecution they were, where some of them could be thrown in prison or people could be killed, there'd be a lot of discussions as to how to hold a service, I'm sure. Right? There'd be a lot of discussions as to how we're supposed to worship, where we should meet, what times, what that should all look like. Like, there's many of those discussions in the church today. But what Paul is saying is, people should see your love for one another. There were people in this church that were arguing over doctrinal things about the Lord's coming, how this works out, how that works out. There were people in this church that were angry because there were loafers who had quit their job and were living off the goodwill of others, no doubt. And what he says is, Here's what you need to focus on. Even in our disagreements, people should be able to see that we're followers of Jesus, that you love one another. And I shouldn't even have to say this. You should know it. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are supposed to love all men. But the Bible says we are especially supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. With every opportunity God provides us, we should be looking to, making an emphasis of loving the actual brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ around us. Don't we need this? I mean, more than ever, in a world that, as we said, is becoming more anti-Christ, I'm happy to come here on a Sunday morning and know there's a bunch of other people that want to love and follow Jesus. And to be able to do that together and to serve in the ministry where I serve and to do that with a bunch of other people that I know are willing to sacrifice and face the shame or the ridicule of serving Jesus in this world where the wind was against his face and it is still against ours. And we need this. It was to stir one another up to love and good works and this church needed it. And the world needs to see it. Even if they, if they walk in here, if an unsaved person comes in, because we all have friends, family that are unsaved. A Christian person from our church brings in a sibling or a parent that doesn't know the Lord, or that's a drug addict or an alcoholic. Do they sense that love in this place? A person who comes in here who's unsaved, that's homosexual or a lesbian or trans or whatever, if they walk in this place and they sat down and they looked at the way we worshiped, the way we studied his word, would they say, these people, they really believe that. They, they, really, they really have some reality there. They love this God, and they love one another. What would be their experience? Because, you know, the world has Christian stereotypes, too. 
the prodigals don't come into the church because they think the minute I'll get there, everybody will look at me and be like, so where you been? Right? And give me a hard time or, you know, unsafe people, as we said. Maybe they're, they're an addict or they're in a homosexual marriage and they think if they come in here, they're just going to, oh, those people are just going to rip us up. And when that's broken, because a lot of people haven't met a living, spirit-filled Christian in their life. When that stereotype is broken, there's, there's something that shakes them. They say, why? Why is that type of love there? Because the world is hurting. The world doesn't have this. The world is hopeless. The world is lost. There's no healing. There's no wholeness. There's no truly good out there. Love has been perverted in a million different ways. And they should sense something different here in the fellowship of the saints. And what Paul is saying is, look, you live in crazy times. There's a lot of pressures. There's a lot of things happening where you guys live. Here's, here's one thing you need to focus on. You need to focus on loving one another as God has taught you. Pull back to the things that you know, that you're, you're taught at the most basic level. Indeed, he says, notice he goes on verse 10, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. And the idea there is an argument from the greater to the lesser. The whole area apparently knew about the love of this church. They were doing these things. And obviously, if the whole area of Macedonia knew about the love they had, then the immediate individuals in the church had to be loving one another. Those, those in direct relation to them. Again, we know this verse, 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21 say, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The, the principle here is very simple. And it goes even beyond love, but any spiritual virtue we think we possess toward God that is not reflected towards others, we don't actually possess. That if I think I have great love for God, but I do not actually have great love for the people around me, I'm a liar to myself. I am self-deceived. If I think I have great humility toward God and I do not express that humility towards other people, I do not have that virtue that I think I possess. If I think I can teach others, but I am not teachable myself, I do not have that virtue I think I possess. If I think I'm giving towards God, but not giving towards others, I do not have that. If I think I really love God, but I'm not loving toward the people around me, there's, there's a self-deception there. There's a lie that needs to be recognized. And this church loved God, and it was evident amongst the fellowship and even the people around them in the area. They were known for that type of love, and Paul was blessed by that. Notice what he says at the end of 10, though. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Do more of this, though. You might think, I love God, and I love the people around me. Great. Do it more. Because there's always more love in him. And the Holy Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. And there should be more of that shared with others as well. It says, don't, great, don't become complacent, though. Keep doing this. 
There might be things that you don't know about this world or about how to live in this particular time. But here's one thing that's really clear. I don't even need to say it. I'm just going to point out God is already teaching you this himself. He's done it through his life. He's done it through his sacrifice. And he's doing it through his spirit in your individual life if you're already a believer. Love one another. Make it your special aim. It will be a direct witness to the world around you. And it's really an evidence of your spiritual life as to where you actually are in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Those actions and words that we have should carry the spirit of the person we're following and who lives in us. That's, that's the first thing they were called to focus on. The next is this. Look at verse 11. He's going to mention a couple other things about their life here. He says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So here he gives three kind of direct things that relate to our Christian life and hope. And the first is this. You aspire to lead a quiet life. What are your aspirations? Again, the world asks, what are your hopes? What are your dreams? When you think about your life, however many years ahead, 10, 20, 30, 5, whatever it is, where are you wanting to be? We all have some type of thought. Uh, even if we don't think about it directly, we, we have some assumption. This is where I'm going to be. This is what my life is going to be like. And sometimes we act as if God has nothing to say about those aspirations, like only Disney does. We just need to follow our heart, and that's what we're supposed to do. No, God does have something to say about our hopes and our aspirations. And what he says directly here is, we should aspire to lead a quiet life. We should have a zealous goal to, leave a, to live a simple and restful life. The language here is also very unique. You could say, he's saying, seek strenuously to be still. You could say, he's saying, be ambitious to be unambitious. The word also has some connotations as to honor and glory. Uh, in the modern vernacular, you, know, you hear people say, like, I'm going to shine, or I want you to shine. It's almost like he's saying, here's how you shine, by leading a quiet life. Here's, here's the goal. Here's the aspiration. And there was something there, apparently, we don't know exactly, in this church that concerned Paul. Some frantic nature, some worrisome rest, uh, restlessness in this fellowship that he felt like needed to be addressed here. And, you know, whatever it was for them, people have their guesses. The idea is the world that you and I live in, basically everything in our life, is not working to build a quiet life for us. Media, TV, politics, society in general, they're seeking to move us one way or another, move our thoughts one way or another, up, down, here, there. It's working less simplicity, less restfulness, less peacefulness, less silence. That word for quiet is translated silent, is translated rested, as in the Sabbath. It has this idea of a simple, quiet life. And that's supposed to be part of our aspirations. The world says bigger, funner, more. God is not saying that. In fact, he's saying when, when you think ahead, when you have a dream or goal, let it, let it be this, a simple, quiet life. 
in relation to him. It's got to be intended. It has to be chosen. It needs to be cultivated. This doesn't happen by magic. That's why he has to say these things. We don't, we don't somehow stumble into a simple and quiet life. We stumble into frantic craziness. We don't stumble into a simple, quiet life. It requires things like saying no, like humility, like surrender, like a narrowing of our focus and our life, godliness. Really, it requires a surrender of worldly aspirations and a grabbing and a holding onto heavenly aspirations. He's saying, look, if Jesus were to show up, guys, I'd hope he'd find you living a life of love and quiet simplicity. That's, that's what you should be thinking about, saying to this church, who had their struggles and their things. The second thing he says, which would make it necessary, is to mind your own business. Translated in the Greek, that means mind your business. Right. This actually translates very directly and not strangely at all, which is interesting, is it not, that their world needed the same thing that our world uh, still needs today. Mind your own business. To mind is to habitually do something, as opposed to a, a one-off act. Right? Like when you tell your kids to take out the trash, you don't mean once. I mean, this is your job. Habitually do this thing, Right? And you're supposed to mind that, busily commit yourself to. That's what it means to mind it. And the business is just your personal duties, the things that actually relate to your life that you're directly responsible for. Now, you know, how many in the world we live in today, how many people are pressured into jumping into the fray of things that are beyond them and they really have little to no responsibility for they want to talk about things and get into things. And, I, you know, I'm appreciative. There are people and individuals that God will call out for specific causes. Like, I'm thankful for a guy like John Perkins, who's a godly man who tries to address the issue of racism. God has raised him up to do that. And there are people that God raises up to fight issues like abortion or sex trafficking. And those things are wonderful. And there's individual calls in those things. But the reality is, most of us are called to worry about the things that are directly in our lives and that we're directly responsible to, right? Like, I might talk about it, and you might get in a conversation with me, and I might be very animated, but it's not up to me to fix the eagles. <laughs> I wish I could, and I will talk about those things, and I can worry about them and have stress about them, but that's, I have no actual responsibility toward the Philadelphia Eagles, right? It's, it's not actually something that is my business. And the reality is, how, how often are we pressured into watching, thinking about, worrying about, talking about, speaking about, debating about all these little things that have nothing to do with us, all the while the trash needs to go out, the dishes need to be done, there's a brokenness in your relationship with your spouse, and like children's ministry still needs volunteers. Because <laughs> in every church in the world, children's ministry still needs volunteers, right? Things that actually relate to us and we could be responsible for. 
And the world, you know, is caught up in all these things. And this is Satan. This is what he wants to do. People are ready to fix a cause or even more, fix America. All, all of everything happening when, again, a marriage is falling apart. Or they want to pontificate about political moral choices, but they can't stop looking at pornography themselves. Or we want to talk about doctrine and different doctrinal views when your kids in your house are broken and afraid because a person can't control their temper or hold their tongue or put the bottle down. There is great wisdom in these words, mind your business. There is no way to live a quiet and peaceable life without minding your business. It, it begins between me and God, and me and my wife, and me and my kids. And sometimes it is your father's business to push you out further and to put you in some public business. But again, this is where we still follow Jesus, don't we? Who, for 30 years of his life, quietly, in a town that was not very popular, lived out 30 years in the home circle, pleasing his heavenly Father, the God of the universe unknown, walking amongst a group of people living daily, normal life in a way that honored his heavenly Father. And look, I think... In our culture, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this social media is a big part of this. Um, it is practically the exact opposite of minding your own business. There is a way to use technology as a tool, but for many people, um, they are striving, not just the church, the world we live in, they are striving to be seen by others comparing one another, which we know is foolishness from the scripture, envying, covetous, every stat and study. You don't, this isn't even Christian. It doesn't have to be Christian. It could be religious or secular that says, the more you give yourself to social media use, the more you are likely to be depressed, cut, have eating disorders, broken relationships, fragmented thought processes, Loneliness, pornography, suicide. Think of anything bad. It gets worse the more you use social media. It's just a proven fact. And the world system, again, this is why God is wise. The world system, which is run by Satan, is working to make us restless and worried about everyone else's business. Like, dude, I just want to watch some funny cat videos. Like... Come on. Like, okay, like I said. But the reality is, people end up being, you know, snoops on Facebook and Instagram where we're just going around looking at things. And, you know, if I could say it as clearly as I can, the Christian is never called to entertain themselves by perusing people's personal business. Never once. And the reality is, if we began to look at social media like Jesus did, or would, we would never want to actually be involved in it, right? Because when Jesus saw a group of people, he had compassion on them. He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And his response was to teach them the word of God. 
when Jesus saw a group of people caught up in Satan's lies that were meant to steal, kill, and destroy, that he wanted to bring under the shelter of his wing, but they would not, he wept. He wept. That was his response to seeing those things. And there's no way that Jesus and his disciples would swipe through and like people's lives the same way we do very often. They see those things so much differently. And you and I, if we are going to find a quiet, peaceable life, aspire to a quiet life, we have to start minding our own business and habitually keep ourselves out of other people's business. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that only comes from God? And the enemy wants to use these things to draw us away from the Lord. And here he's saying to this church, you're living in a crazy time. The Lord is coming soon. Live a quiet, peaceable life. Mind your own business. Do that first. And if he at some point sees fit to do something else, he can do that. Or to lead you somewhere else, he can do that. Not only that, notice what he says next. Third, to work with your own hands. The idea is aspire to decent and honorable work that provides for us and our families. Uh, this is not a church of rich people. There were times where Paul dressed churches where there was wealthy people, and he would speak about wealth and uh, the warnings about wealth and how to actually use our wealth for the kingdom of God. There's none of that in this church. Seems like it's a blue-collar church. These people worked normal jobs to make a living. Paul was that example for them when he was there. He was a tent maker. And he would call them to do and follow the things that he did and to follow his example. The Greeks looked at work as uh, demeaning. Any manual labor for the Greek, that's what slaves did. But the Jew, even if they were wealthy, they would always learn a trade. It was, it was an honorable thing to do. And Paul is saying, here's, here's what you need to do. Because there are some people in this church that thought, you know what? If Jesus is coming back, world's crazy. Why, why am I going to this job at the docks? I quit. Right? I'm just going to sit around and wait. Like, what is the purpose of this job? And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. Work and honor the Lord there. It's, it's a decent and honorable thing to do. Work with your own two hands. Go about, that's part of your business, a large part of your business in this life. And again, this is where Jesus honors us and again sets an example. He sanctified the carpenter's shop for years with his own sweat and blood. And the reality is if we can't honor God in those places where most of us work, that's where we spend a large part of our lives. If we can't honor God those five or six days of the week, why do we think we're doing anything different when we come once a week on a Sunday? No, we have to honor him there. And again, it looks a little different for all of us. And God may call us to something different at some point, as he did for some of these men. He would call some people to specific causes. He raised up Daniel and Joseph to be political administrative leaders. He raised up other men to minister, like Moses. He caught Nehemiah in the middle of cup-bearing, 
right, for his other purpose in life, the disciples while they were fishing. I love Amos's story. Amos was a prophet, and as he's prophesying, one of the priests of the false gods tells him, don't prophesy anymore. We don't want to hear from you. And Amos says, I was not a prophet. I wasn't the son of a prophet. I was a shepherd and a farmer of fig trees. And God said to me, go prophesy. So I'm going to keep saying what I'm saying, right? He was like, I'm just minding my business doing the thing the Lord called me to do. And then he called me to something else, and I can't do anything but now. And there's a place where that can happen. But for most of us, this is where it starts. This is where it started for Jesus. This is where it started for the disciples, where it started for Moses. This is where it starts for us as well. We work with our own two hands. Notice, as we commanded you. That, notice now, you may walk properly in 12 toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. The idea is, what does this type of life produce? What does this show? It earns the respects. This type of life earns the respect of outsiders. This quiet, simple life where we're minding our own business, working with our own two hands day in and day out, is something that the world looks at us and says, how come those people love one another, aren't caught up in all the things we're caught up in and do a decent job. Like, why is that, why is that any, why, what is going on with you? Where, where do you get that hope from? And that's when the Bible says that we should be ready to give an answer to every man that asks a reason for the hope that lives in us. Like, what is, what's going on with you? Or what's up with this place, Calvary Philly? Like, what, what is happening there? Paul would say this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, Therefore I, exo- I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. And maybe we know these verses, right? We pray for our government, our political leaders. We're called to do that. And we pray for them. But maybe you don't know why. Here's why that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He says, here's why you should pray for your political leaders and your rulers, so that you could lead a quiet, peaceable life. Because when that happens... God is pleased, and the outside world looks at you and says, what's up with you? What's up with you? And God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't this beautiful? Every one of us can do this. Every one of us can do this. These commands, these things that are put in front of us, if you feel lost, like, what am I supposed to do? Things are crazy. Lord, you're coming back. Things are crazy in America. How do I respond? What do you want me to do? Here's what you can do. And you can do exactly these things. It's not about the things he calls particular individuals to do that are really public, right? You look at Billy Graham, oh, you know, I'll never be like that. Or, you know, you read a Christian biography, like I read George Whitfield's biography, and I'm like, wow, I'm not a Christian. He's a Christian. Maybe I need to get saved again, you know? That's not what, that's not what it's about. What it's about is this, a collective, quiet, 
peaceable life becomes a witness to the restless, loveless, lost world around us. And then they ask us, what's up with you? If we're like them, caught up in the frantic pace, looking lost, worried about aspirations that are worldly that are falling apart, then they're never going to say what's up with you. But this becomes a witness and is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see yourself inside this circle? Inside this circle of people that do those things. Right? That's, what, that's what Paul's doing. He's drawing this line around the Thessalonians. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what he's called us to do. This is where you need to focus in the middle of this life. Right? So again, what are, we, what are we dreaming about? Is it this? How is our life looking? Right? What if we don't get the life that we thought we wanted? What if we've already lived and some of the things we hoped for fell apart? What if, what if I don't get the, you know, the big house down the shore or in the quiet little town, right? Because some of us, our, our aspirations are HDTV aspirations, right? Pinterest, Pinterest aspirations. It might not be, you don't think you're going to rule the world, but you're like, I want my bathroom to look like that. That's my aspirations. <laughs> and if it doesn't happen, I'm going to be angry and my life is going to be frantic. I like that's the reality to some of us, and all of us have that in one way or another. Right? What if we lived in an apartment and worked a job and provided for ourselves and served others? What if we did that single, or what if we did it married? What if we did it with kids or without kids? What if you lived quietly and worked decently and loved deeply? Is that a meaningful life? It is to Jesus. It is to God. He says, aspire to this, because it'll please me, and it'll be a witness to the world around you. You feel lost in the middle of those things? Because Satan doesn't want you to do those things. He wants you to dream about and worry about and aspire to things that are going to ruin your peace. Paul's saying, look, the Lord is coming quickly. He's coming soon, and you are living in crazy situations. But here's what I want you to do. Love one another. Think about leading a quiet life. Let that be your hope, your aspiration. Mind your own business. And work decently with your own two hands, because that's going to be a life that witnesses to the unsaved world and pleases God. Look, I'm trying to stack up all the normal days I can get in life. And if God has something else for us, he'll call us to that, and he'll show us. But for the rest of us, I hope that can be clarifying for an aim. So let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us. Lord, you know we live in the morass of this world and it so easily with its atmosphere just causes these thoughts and worries and concerns to seep into our life the world the flesh and the devil pressuring in ways that are opposite of you but you are gracious lord to meet us to speak to us 
to redirect our hearts. You're our teacher. And we don't want flesh and blood to teach us these things, but our Father, which is in heaven. So show us, Lord, what this looks like in our lives individually and allow us to walk worthy of the vocation with which we are called. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.